Hello and welcome all into the MO podcast. You're here with me, Contumacious Ab, and my lovely co-host, Atreya. And today we're going to be talking about the BTK Killer. This one is odd. Yeah. It's it's an interesting one. I I think it's it's interesting from my perspective, not in the fact of what he did and what happened, but how and possibly why he did it. Yeah. But let's let's get into it. So Dennis Rader was born in Kansas. He grew up in Wichita. He was a staff sergeant in the Air Force between 1966 and 1970. 1974 to 1988, he was a security alarm installer for ADT. During that time, he held many positions in the company, obviously climbing up the ladder to positions of authority. He he went to night school to earn his degree in criminal administration. He was, by his own confession, he was a bad student, C to D grade, but he tried and he did get his bachelor's degree. He was married and he had two children. In 91 to 2005, he worked for the Park City Compliance Office, where he was... All around Bellend. Well, yeah, he was uh, sat on the board of the Animal Control Advisory Board. He sat on the Zoning Appeals Board. He was a member of a Lutheran church for 30 years. He was actually president of the Congressional Council in his church. He was a Cub Scout leader from the early 80s, but... Between 1974 and 1991, he killed 10 people and was labelled the bind, torture, kill, killer. So what happened? This guy who was so normal on the outside, going around, having so many functional jobs. Yeah. He, he, he wasn't like he, he floated from job to job. He he was 14 years at uh, ADT. He was 15 years for the Park City Compliance. It, he'd, he'd been through the Air Force. Yeah, he's a... Uh... He doesn't fit, does he? He was generally a pillar of the community. A churchgoer, basically, you know, all around good American dad. And then he was doing these horrible things in the sidelines and nobody had any idea because he was just this great guy, you know, good, great to talk to, did, did nice things for his community, was very attentive to his kids and his wife. And like you say, he held down good, steady jobs. Uh, I did, however, uh, find a snippet of information that he used to kill and torture small animals but with regards to his actual home life and his upbringing it seemed relatively normal happy just there's nothing well i couldn't find anything that triggered him to start doing these horrible things yeah of course i mean there's nothing that you can actually see if you if you if you look at at it there's nothing that you can go yeah well definitely i mean he 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 did, he was engaged in zoo sadoism, as you say. He did hung cats and dogs, which is part of the triad. It is, yeah. He, his parents worked long hours and he did feel ignored, especially by his mother, who he started to resent because of this. I think this is one of the major factors that kind of turned him because in 
most of his victims were what I think what he wanted. It's not what played out, but he would go after women. Mm-hmm. And I think this him feeling ignored by his mother, I think this is kind of the catalyst of why he went after the women that he did. He did actually have bondage and control fantasies when he started hitting puberty and there was a mouseketeer uh, from from the Disney Channel that he was very enamoured with and he would play out these fantasies in his head. <laughs> but oh, Lord. he didn't really act out on it. There's nothing like, I mean, you could see with Herb, he wasn't asking people for a drink in class, you know, like with Ed Kemper as well. Like you, you, you could see it. He he was, his mother treated him like shit. There's, there's, mm-hmm. there's no kind of triggers here. Mm-hmm. And if he wouldn't have got caught, you'd, because he admitted to the Zeusadoism, so we, we would have never known about it. So yeah. It's it's something that he kept very personal and private, and I don't really think he had when he was having relationships with women. I don't think he was engaging in bondage with them no. in a healthy way. He wasn't part of the BDSM community kind of thing. He just kept it yeah. all inside, and it kind of blew up every now and then. He would he'd, he'd regularly troll neighborhoods looking for victims he'd drive around at night or when he had downtime from work and just look around for women and once he'd found someone he'd start stalking them work out their routine see what how he could get access to their houses he'd he'd come up with a plan he wasn't just doing this off the cuff uh, once once he found a victim, he turned them into projects and he had names for the projects. Project Lights Out was one, Project Piano was another one. So he kind of designated these these killings into, yep. I don't want to say a hobby, but certainly a pastime for him. He had... he had They were meticulous plans. So. Yeah, yeah, to the detail. Yeah. And he had hit kits and hit clothes. He, he, he wore clothes of to do the jobs that he was doing and he had his own bag that he took with him with his own tools of the trade and he would read detective magazines as well so he knew how to not leave evidence and how to get away with well basically to how to evade arrest it seemed like he had a, a good understanding as well of the logic and mentality of your stereotypical serial killer as well yeah he got his bachelor's in criminal administration so mm. yeah. i I don't think that's how and why people do what they do. I think it's more on the evidence side. Yeah. You know, because it's the admin side of it. So he's seen firsthand or he got to glimpse firsthand of what detectives would use as evidence. So then therefore he could take that out of the equation when he's doing it. So I, I think he was he was very very well prepared for yeah what he did i think the first the first killing i mean i don't i don't know if he meant to do it or he he got flummoxed i mean certainly the <clears throat> the first killings killings was the otero family in the 15th of january 1974 he raider actually selected 
this family because of their mother's Latino looks. He had a thing for uh, dark hair, tan skin, and it, it played up to his fantasy. Yeah. What he didn't plan for was that the father, Joseph, was home. Raider didn't realise this. He just thought it would be the mother and the two children. And he wasn't wearing a mask. No, I think this is why I don't think he actually had to kill people. I just think yeah. he did it to protect himself. He knew that he wasn't wearing a mask and they'd be able to identify him, so he had no choice but to kill them. Yeah. Basically, yeah. So Raider cut the phone lines, and at this time he was, he was working at AD&T, which were uh, home security installators, so he he's already halfway through the door by knowing their security layout, their security system, so he knows what to do. He waited for them to open the door as they were leaving, and then he walked in, holding them at gunpoint. He used a ruse that he was a wanted criminal, he was on the run, he needed cash, he needed a car, he needed. He just wanted to kind of get out of there. So he tied the family up. Now the reason that I say I don't necessarily think he wanted to kill people is because Joseph complained that he had a crap rib from a car accident earlier on. And Raider actually tried to make him comfortable, he put a pillow underneath him so he wouldn't be in any discomfort. If he'd gone in there with the intention of killing them all, why would he care about that? Why bother? Yeah. Little thing. Yeah. It's just, and he, he he does something again, which I think he's not compassionate, but I just don't think he he had the intention uh, in the beginning. But then this is the point when he he realised that the family could ID him because he wasn't wearing a mask. They lived in the same area as him. So they may have seen him previously. They may see him again. So I think he kind of panics now. Maybe not panics, but he realizes he's got to go in whole hog yeah. with this. This is what he has to do. He uh, he tries to strangle. He puts a plastic bag over Joseph's head and ties a cord around it. And then he tried to strangle Mrs. Otterio. But she just passed out. She didn't actually die. And again, this for me is he's not he wasn't actually prepared to kill them. Yeah. He had his hit kit with him. He had him ready to tie up and act out his sexual fantasies. But he thought it was easier to strangle someone. He didn't know how to strangle someone. So for me he wasn't really prepared. Yeah. He he came back to Joseph and he saw Joseph had had made a hole in the bag. He bit a hole in the bag so he wasn't actually suffocating. Then he put a t-shirt around Joseph's head. And so he couldn't chew out of the bag this time, put the bag over his head. He went to strangle the daughter, Josephine, but the same happened. She only passed out. He didn't realise that she was passed out, so he thought she was dead. He went back to finish off Mrs. Otero with an actual rope. Then he took Junior, the son, to his bedroom, put a bag over his head and tied it and then sat in the bedroom and actually watched him die. Now I think this is this is probably the moment where he actually crosses that line of going this is this kind of fits in with the fantasy that I'm I want to do yeah. now. I didn't mean to do this but this is what is going to happen from now on kind of thing. Uh just because he sat there and watched it and I think he actually said yeah. He took pleasure from watching him die. Yeah. Then he went back to the room that Josephine was in. This is the daughter. She'd woke back up. So 
He then took her to the basement and hung her from a sewer pipe. And when she was dead, after she was dead, he masturbated and he actually ejaculated on her legs and her feet. He's getting a bit short on time now. And he, he said he used the right-hand rule to clear the house, taking keepsakes. Now, I didn't understand what he meant with this. But, in fact, the right-hand rule, if you hold your right hand and put your thumb up, so, like, in a thumbs-up position, if you follow your thumb out and the line of the fingers, it's kind of a circular motion. So I think that's what he mean. He went, he went room to room in that kind of circular motion so he didn't miss anything. Rather than going room to room panicking, going in this room, that room, that room, he, he used he used a mnemonic to to do it. So he was very <sighs> premeditated with it. Controlled. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So he knew what he had to do and what he had to take. He did take a few keepsakes. He took Joseph's watch and a clock, which obviously serial killers do take keepsakes. It, it's one of them things. And then he, he, he took the Otero's car and drove back to the supermarket drove to a supermarket and then walked back to his car. The thing is that the Arteros had three more children and they came home to find this scene. They were they were 13, 14 and 15 years old, the children that came home to find this scene. And that, that is... Horrible. Yeah, that is pretty horrifying for, for them. Poor, poor kids. Definitely. And then Catherine Bright was the next murderer. This was on the 4th of April, 1974. He broke in through the back door and waited for her to come home. So he, he'd set this up in his mind. He knew exactly what he was going to do, where he was going to be and what was going to happen. But her brother was with her when she got back and Raider, he wasn't expecting this. He was, uh, he was put out a bit. And he played the fugitive ruse again. He's on the run. He just needs car. He needs money. He he forced them to tie each other up. He doesn't actually say who tied who up. He, he couldn't remember. By the way, I'm getting all this information. He made a full confession to all these crimes. And he explained it. There are videos on YouTube and there are transcripts. So this information is pulled directly from what he said. So he didn't say who tied who, but he can't remember, but one of them tied the other one up and then he tied that person up kind of thing. He uh, he tied Kevin to the bedposts of one of the beds and took Catherine in a different room. He came back in to strangle Kevin, but Kevin had loosened his bonds and a fight broke out. This is when Raider shot Kevin in the head. Now, Raider was a small arms expert. He he got the accommodation of being a small arms expert in his Air Force days. So he was quite calm and controlled in the situation where he, where he had a gun. And he did use a gun a few times. But rather than be it point blank, I think it was more calculated that he, he pushed him away and then maybe shot him. And he thought he was actually dead. So because he dropped to the floor, Kevin dropped to the floor. And then so he went back to Catherine and proceeded to strangle her. Now, he said, as she was going down, blacking out, I assume, he went back to Kevin to re-strangle him. I don't know why he didn't just finish her off, but that's just for him to think about, I suppose. But he went back to Kevin to re-strangle him, 
but he wasn't actually dead from the gunshot. Another fight broke out, and this time Kevin got a hold of Raider's gun. And he tried to shoot him, but Raider managed to jam the gun by sticking his finger in the cocking mechanism. Uh, I assume it's a revolver because he said it's a magnum. So I think that's where his, his small arms training from the Air Force came it just kicks in mm. i think it's just second nature to him because this is yeah just as well really as or he would have been shot well yeah it's only it's still in his mind it's only four years previous and i think he was just doing it automatically uh mm-hmm. so he didn't realize that raider had another gone and kevin was shot for a second time and this time he thought that's it he's done he's dead he's got two bullets in him so he went back to finish Catherine off, but he couldn't actually strangle her. Now, I don't know why he couldn't. Maybe he was too high on adrenaline. I, I really don't know. But he says he couldn't strangle her, so he stabbed her. And then it was during this time he was stabbing her that he heard the front door go and he'd realised that Kevin hadn't died and he'd ran, he'd fled through the front door. And Raider started to panic now. In his own words, he says this was a mess. He tried to take the car, it wasn't working, so he fled on foot to his car. And in this one, he, he, Raider said he, he didn't think that he had his hit kit with him, or Kevin would have actually died because he wouldn't have got out of his bonds. He, he thinks he was using something that he just found there. Yeah. He got away, luckily. And then the next victim was Shirley Vane, which was... March 17, 1977. Now, from here on out, I think he gets more professional with it, with his killing, because yeah. these are more concise. And even when he's he's saying it in, in the courtroom or you're reading the transcripts, it's more concise, it's more to the point. There's very little obstacles that come in the way. And if there are obstacles, he kind of deals with it rather than panicking as i think he did in the in the first two cases he's had a bit more practice now i think he's a bit more confident isn't he exactly i think he's he's getting into his art he knows what he's he's doing he knows what it's about now and which is which is bizarre because shirley was chosen after raider's original victim didn't answer the door so by this weird twist of fate shirley fine dies and this other person lives but even though he's kind of doing this on the fly, he still manages to get away with it. And the reason he actually chose Shirley is because he just spoke to a child, uh, uh, one of her children in the street, and he was saying he played a ruse of showing him pictures, and he said, oh, can you identify this for me? And then he actually followed the child back to his his house, broke into the house, he, t- he tied the children up, put them in the bathroom. See, in this one, he put the bath- put the children in the bathroom with toys and blankets to make them comfortable. And didn't hurt them, didn't kill them. Yeah, exactly. And he tied the door shut. Whether he was he was planning to, I don't, I don't know, because he, he did leave in a hurry. I think this is the one where he said the dogs were playing cane out back. The kids were banging on the bathroom and the, the phone rang and she missed. She mentioned something about a neighbour checking in on them. Maybe that was just a ruse, but the phone rang while he was there and he was getting a bit panicked, so maybe he just he just left quicker. But I think it's the toys and the blankets. I don't really think he was going after them. Yeah. 
Which is strange after what he did to the Oteros. Exactly. And and with this one as well, with Shirley, he, he tied her up and he actually got her a glass of water because she was sick with terror. He got her a, a glass of water and, you know, like, get, get the sick taste out your mouth, have a glass of water, everything's going to be okay. But then he put a bag on her head and proceeded to strangle her. It doesn't make any sense. Not that any serial killers make any sense, but it doesn't. He's not following a pattern like with other things we've seen. No, he isn't. Like with Ed Kemper, it was A, B, C. It was just kind of that thing, you know, whereas... And with Herb as well, it was A, B, C kind of thing. But this one, it's just up and down. It's not... Yeah. I just don't... But he strangled her. The kids were banging on the bathroom door. The dogs were barking. There was a lot of noise going on. So he cleaned the house as quick as he could and, and left. And then Nancy Fox was the 8th of December, 77, 1977. Again, he cut the phone lines. He broke in her into her apartment and waited for her to return. When she came back, he confronted her. And he actually said he, he had a sexual fantasy. And that she was going to be part of it. So she had a cigarette and actually turned to him and said, fine, let's get it over with so then I can call the police. (laughs) Wow, as you do. But at this moment, I don't think there was anything to say that he was going to kill her. Maybe she thinks she's, I'm not going to say only, but she's going to be raped and she'll walk away from this and then she can call the police and then... And then they can deal with it afterwards. It's it's one of them things. It's in front of her. She's going to deal with yeah. it in that respect. Because she doesn't put up a fight. You know what I mean? If if that's kind of you resign to that, but you're saying at the end of it, so I can call the police, you think you're going to get out the other side. So I don't think Raider came across as saying, I'm going to kill you, you know? It seems like he wasn't actually sure when he entered the houses whether or not he was going to kill anybody or just, you know tie them up and torture them it's like he didn't even know in his own head yeah that his plan didn't go that far he had his his kit just in case you know like with the oteros that they they would have been able to id him maybe his his little you know kit was a a backup in case things went horribly wrong but i don't think even in his his head he knew what the outcome of of that break-in was going to be no as soon as he got in i think he'd just go with his emotions, with his feelings as to yeah. what happened to them. Yeah. And as well, she went to the bathroom and he said, when you come out of the bathroom, I want you to be naked. She came out naked and then he got partially naked as well. So up until this point, I think she just thinks, I'm going to get molested. It's, But then I'll deal with what happens afterwards. But then he, he Raider strangled her with a belt and then he he masturbated after uh, and again got his kit cleaned the house and then left now the next victim is marine hodges and we now have eight years have gone by and nothing has happened and during this time during the time that these murders were being committed he was actually it was a big news story obviously and now, I think, in 28th of April, 1985, I think they just think he's gone away. It's not the same person kind of thing from a police point of view. But Marine Hodges was actually a neighbour of Raiders. It's not like they were on talking terms, but 
they lived down the road from each other and it was a wave, a hello kind of thing. She would have known it was him. Yeah, yeah. He he first thought she was at home because her car was parked out front, so he was a bit perturbed by that. He actually staked out the house for a bit and when he broke in, he broke in like a cat burglar, he said. He hid in the bedroom. She came home with a male companion who was there for an hour or so and he radar waited until the wee hours until assaulting her. He basically jumped out the cupboard, flipped on the lights, a hand strangled her with his hands. This is where he starts to get a bit more cocky with his his killings and his and his victims because he actually took her body to the Christ Lutheran Church placed her in poses and took pictures of her and then he took her body away and dumped it in a ditch at the side of the road which was his church as well that's his church yeah yeah i think his child his first child was born in 1974 so by the time of Nancy Fox 77 the child's just 3 years old growing up you know He's becoming to the age of the first couple of years, especially back then, the mother took care of it, but now becoming more of a dad. And I think this is why the break has been so long. But as well, I think there's been that kind of sexual frustration for him that he's not been able to to do anything like this for eight years to even satisfy his, his, his fetish, his craving for this. So I think this is why he goes, he, he takes the pictures he he goes. He takes more risks just to get that bigger payoff in his in his own for his own sexual reward, I suppose. Yeah. Vicky Wegley was the next victim, and this was the sixteenth of September in nineteen eighty six. So eighteen months later, this time he was uh, he 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 was dressed as a telephone repairman. And he, he knocked on a door to, to check her telephone lines. This was all down meticulously done to the, the wire. He was checking the, her phone and he had some little machine that he had, which looked good enough to pass muster, I think he said. And when he turned around, he had a gun and he tied Vicky up using material from the bedroom. But because it wasn't his own kit, she broke the bonds and she started to fight with him. Raider regained control of the situation and proceeded to strangle her with a nylon sock. It's quite eh, not interesting, but fair play to her because when she was fighting, he actually said, yeah, she was giving me hell. And she did, she did fight hard and if only she could have fought harder, which is a shame. But then Raider regained control of the situation and he proceeded to strangle her with a nylon sock. He took a few pictures and quickly cleaned up as the uh, she'd said her husband was due home very shortly. And she didn't actually die at the scene. When he left, she was actually al- alive and the paramedic did try to resuscitate her, but she did actually die due to strangulation. So the next victim was Dolores Davis, 18th of January, 1991. This was basically a home invasion as Raider threw a concrete block through the window to gain access. And when she actually came out of the bedroom, she thought a car had hit the house. 
but Raider was just stood there. He used he used the fugitive ruse again. He just needed money, something to eat, a car to get out of the place. As he was feigning eating or having something to eat, he took Dolores by surprise. He tied her up and then strangled her with pantyhose. Uh, he took her. He then took her body and dumped it under a bridge. During this murder, or during when Raider is talking about this, he, he says he had a commitment to this that he, he had to get to after this murder. That was thought to be a scout camping trip, and he attended it, and no one suspected a thing. He'd just done this and then went to take the scouts camping. Like it was just that easy. Yeah. Yeah, it was nothing to him. No. It's also interesting to note that in 1979, Anna Williams was a project for Raider, and she returned home later than expected, and he actually got bored of waiting for her, so he left. He was he was waiting for her in a house, and she didn't return home at the time because she was out with the girlfriends. And he he was he was absolutely livid that he'd missed one, and he also confessed that he had planned to kill again in October two thousand and four, but he actually never followed through with that one. So that was that was him. That well, that was that was what he did. And he taunted the police something chronic. He did, yeah. So even though his his last murder was in nineteen ninety one. He actually wasn't arrested until 2005. Yeah. Like you said, he taunted the police. He, in October 74, he wrote a letter detailing how he killed the Otero family and he put it in an engineering book at the public library. He stashed it in the back there. He then rang the police and told them exactly where the book was. So the police had this letter about what he had done the letter that only a killer would know. Yeah. The letter is a bit weird for me because he he seems to want the publicity and what he consider, considers the adulation because he wants people to know it's him. But he also claims to have like a Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing because he, he, in it he says, yeah. when the monster takes hold of me, I don't know what I'm going to do. But he also says... I did it. There's gonna be more. Yeah. So it's it's like I think he's just using the Jekyll and Hyde thing as a ruse. Well, he definitely is because he knows what he's doing. He's not. There's no mental illness there. It, he's very he's very on it. He knows exactly what he's doing and how he's doing it. Uh, I I just think he's trying to use that as a get out of jail free card. If and when he gets caught, he can always say, "Well, it's not me; it's this." Yeah, which is exactly what Ted Bundy actually said. Ted Bundy said that he had this monster that controlled him that he couldn't con he couldn't control what he would do when this monster took over. It seems to be a bit of a theme, kind of pat trying to pawn off the blame onto something that isn't your fault when it clearly is. Exactly. It's and especially with Raider and Bundy, they were very, very, very intelligent people. Uh and Yeah. They're well read in the fact that I think if they know that they can 
pass it on to mental illness or having an affliction, a sexual proclivity. Yeah. If they think it can get them out of that situation, they're, they're going to do it and they're going to set it up as, as early as they possibly can. Yeah. Just so they can always go, but I told you back in 74 that I was like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And what's what's funny about this letter is it was full of grammatical errors and spelling mistakes. And apparently, as Dennis Rader was reading the paper with this letter in, his wife looked over his shoulder and went, isn't it funny that he spells the same words wrong you do? Yeah. I think he said he thought at the time he was going to have to kill her, but then she never said anything more about it. So he was even going to kill his own wife. Yet, I watched um, an interview with Raider's daughter, Kerry, and um, she specifically said, because the the the, um, the interviewer actually said to her, how did you and your mother not know that your dad was BTK? And she said, we never talked about it in the house. We never brought up BTK. And yet here's this other source saying he was reading the newspaper at the table and they were clearly talking about it. Whether or not maybe Kerry was just too young, she, she didn't understand, or maybe she wasn't there, I don't know. But she specifically said, we didn't know because we didn't talk about it. Nobody talked about it in the house. I don't know how you wouldn't talk about it. It's in your neighbourhood. <laughs> yeah, Wichita is not a massive place and this all took part in, I think it was either Sedgeway County or Park County. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of travelling over county lines. He didn't travel very far to do these things. So, yeah. And especially as they're part of the church, you know what I mean? Do you know how big gossipers church yeah. people are kind of thing? I mean, I know yeah. it's stereotypes, but they are. Come on. Yeah. Uh, so it, they'd be talking about it everywhere, I think. Maybe, maybe he just didn't want it brought up in the house. Yeah. Because from what he's been described as, he's kind of uh, an authoritarian. Yeah. He did, when he was part of the Park County Animal Control, he did euthanize someone's dog. Bastard. Thing is, as well, he the dog was off the lead. And it, it had been off the lead frequently. And he went to court with it. And one of the the the... The guy that he was facing actually turned around and said he came to court with more evidence than I'd go to court with on a murder case. I saw that interview. Now, whether he's just a crap lawyer, I I, I don't <laughs> know, or, or Raiders over-prepared, but... It sounds like he's a control freak. I think this is it. I think with... it's For me, it starts off as a staff sergeant. He's not just a sergeant. He's a staff sergeant. So, whereas mm-hmm. a st- sergeant is the go-between with the non-commissioned officers and the grunts kind of thing. He's still part of being a grunt. He can talk to a captain, a lieutenant, whatever, but he, he's also one of the guys. Do you know what I mean? Whereas a yeah. staff sergeant is primarily dealing with office-based work. That So mm-hmm. I think they think they see themselves like this is again if you're a staff sergeant then i'm not saying this is you but i think for for dennis raider i think he saw himself as more of a commissioned officer rather than being a a, a grunt he was more further over mm-hmm. to that side in in his own head 
and as well with the criminal administration it's the administration part of it it's the back office stuff so he's controlling what goes in and out yeah even to an extent the ADT securities he's controlling people's lives in the respect of he can put in a security system yeah and certainly without a shadow of doubt with the with the compliance office for he was on the zoning appeals board he had as far as he was concerned he, he it was his choice he made the decision in his own head with the when he was on the zoning appeals board and the animal control advisory board it was his choice not anyone else's i think that's the way it kind of worked from for him yeah he did have quite a substantial amount of power in his life then it just clearly wasn't enough for him exactly and i think because it involved the sexual element to him he was getting fulfilled in his home well in his work life and because he had children who he could mold because as much as no one wants to say this when you're a parent you do mold your child into how you want to be and if you're controlling you will control them it's as simple as it is so he kind of had that, but because he didn't actively engage in the BDSM community, I think that is where he was lacking, and that is why he went out and did this kind this this thing because he wasn't sexually fulfilled. Yeah, but he was so he was so random though, you know. Like I mean, what he did to Josie Otero, clearly he. he actually even admitted saying it turned me on and so he clearly has had some pedophilic urges that we never saw again in any of the other murders in fact he was nice to the other kids well i say nice you know he 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 didn't kill them he didn't abuse them he took them away safely we never saw this kind of behavior again it it, it just he 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 went for years and years and years without between between murders. Like normally, you know, they 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 tend to get closer and closer and closer together. The murders as the the urges become stronger and you lose more and more control and you need the hit. You know, like an addiction. But his get further and further apart. It it doesn't. It's all so random. Yeah, and I think that is part of his thinking as well that to keep it as random as possible it's gonna it's less likely to get exactly i think it's gonna leave the police very little options if he's if he's thorough in cleaning that house then there's very little stuff that they can find on but if he's doing it week after week the more you do something the more you're gonna slip up and i think as well it's kind of and as well you never know it could be uh, if he's very religious, he's been a member of a church for 30 years, he could think that this is kind of the sexual side of it is a sin against God. So he can't do it all the time. Yeah. Granted, murder is a sin as well, but I yeah. think we've kind of gone past that now. And and it's yeah, it's kind of having the shame of having this fantasy this fetish because he's not told anyone as far as we know he's not 
part of any communities of the BDSM community. So he's keeping it all to himself. So he has a certain amount of shame there, I would assume. Yeah. Maybe he just doesn't want to do it all the time. But with his when he when he started to take pictures, maybe the pictures and the memories are what's getting him through, so he doesn't have to do it all the time as well. Yeah, it's just. But also, if he wanted to change it up so that the police weren't onto him, why then taunt the police and say, "Hey, by the way, I did this." Yeah, like why not just keep all the murders the same? If that if you're gonna take credit for them publicly, I don't. I mean, he wasn't. He wasn't really that smart when it all came to an end because he sent a message to the police saying, hey, if I put a file on a floppy disk, can you trace it back to me? And the police were like, this bell end. No, don't be ridiculous. Of course we can't. Send it away. We want to hear from you. And then decrypted it and went, oh, yeah, it's Dennis Rader. <laughs> like, what? <the> what? <laughs> I think as well, this this when you you look at it, because it was it was... It was super puzzling my head about why, after all this time, did he start mm-hmm. becoming public again? Did he start writing to the police? And because there'd been so much silence about it, and I couldn't work out why. And it was because one of the local papers, the Wichita Eagle, ran a... It was a 30-year anniversary of the Otero family killing. Uh. And... They put it in the newspaper. They just they just put it in. It's this this is a cold case by now from the police. They got no more clues on it. They've got no more. Didn't have any DNA of his. They well they did, but they didn't have anything to test it against. They didn't have any kind of clues about who this could be, and then all of a sudden, thirty years, they the paper writes this article about. This happened 30 years ago on this day. This happened. What a tragic look. X, Y, Z. And then all of a sudden, Dennis Rader goes, they're talking about me again. And I think this is his narcissism. This This is his ego, yeah. Yeah, he has to control this narrative. And in the previous, he he sent two letters and the the phone call was all that he sent in, in the last time. But the reason is why it got he, he sent so many communications. I think he sent like 10 communications from 2004 up until he was arrested is because they kept putting him back in the spotlight. Yeah. And he was really enjoying it. It was it was one of the tactics that one of the uh, profilers said to do to keep putting it in the paper, keep saying BTK is talking to us because it's it's stroking his ego. The more the yeah. more he hears his own name or the the pseudonym he's given himself, the more he hears this, the more he's going to get into contact. The more he gets into contact, the more he's going to mess up. Yeah, that profiler is a genius, let's face it. I think where they went wrong earlier on is that they didn't give it enough press coverage. Yeah. That they didn't stroke his ego as much as he would have liked. They they only published the the maybe he sent more in the past, but they only published the two, the two letters and and it is it was a stroke of genius. Yeah, definitely. But again, he was a you know he was a killer in the seventies and the eighties. 
he it's a it was a would have been a very stupid thing he did actually say that he wasn't finished and he would have killed again and he had somebody else lined up when he was arrested it would have been a very stupid thing to do because the technology and the forensics have changed so much since the 1970s and 1980s he there's no way he wouldn't have been caught exactly everything's advanced now i yeah. mean by when he was arrested i think he was just nearly shy of 60 60 years of age so i mean he would have been acting like he well he would have been old but he would have still had the mindset of the 70s and the 80s and and everything has moved on since then yeah. like the way Obviously, like you said, the way they tracked him was he sent in a disc to the, God damn it. he sent in a disc to the paper and the police analyzed it and it was they they traced it to the Lutheran church with the last known user who edited the disc was a Dennis. They looked <laughs> at the parish council and went, Dennis Rader is the president. <laughs> And then they they drove past his house and saw a black Cherokee vehicle that was seen on CCTV during the time of the murders. They seen it there, but it's circumstantial evidence. Which, like, who who has a car from the eighties uh, still? And who uses their own car at a crime scene? Yeah, he was he he'd failed. Uh, and his time, his time was running short. The actual way they got their DNA is that the FBI sequestered one of his daughter's pap smears yeah. from the University of Kansas Medical. And the DNA showed that the DNA found at the Otero scene was someone that was closely related to her. Yeah. So now they had enough evidence to charge him and he... At first, when he was arrested, he was asked, do you know why we're arresting you? And he actually said, yeah, I've got a strong suspicion of why you are, yes. And then, back and forth, he he was, he was didn't actually plead guilty at first, but when he pled guilty, he said it was just a question of maths. Basically, there'd be a long trial. They'd get a guilty verdict at the end of it all. So he just wanted to save time, really, which is really strange when he wanted to be in the spotlight all yeah. the time. He he didn't have this long drawn out. But I think I think as well for him and the way he, he reads it out, I think that's his moment in the sun when you see him stood there. I think he's... He doesn't show any emotion, but I think he is enjoying every minute of it that everyone's looking at him, asking him questions and and the way yeah. the way he talks about it, like it's his world. But he was very straight faced. I mean, I watched the, the footage of him in, in court and you would think he I mean, he's the kind of guy who is very Ted Bundy like in how he's treating the press and things like that. And you would think that he would be your all-American dad being charming and, like, I mean, Bundy had everybody in the court loving him. You would think that he would have seen that footage and he would have gone, well, hey, work for Bundy. You know, I can get a bit more press out of this. I can get a bit more fame out of this, boost my ego a bit more. And yet he didn't. He just stood there and straight-faced, just nothing. That's it. 
Yeah, considering he considering he thought he was cleverer than everyone, he thought he was above people. Yeah. I think he whether he was just defeated yeah. at the end of it and he'd realized how easily he'd been ensnared yeah. because it was something he didn't have to rise to that bait. Yeah. He he would have gone to his grave with no one knowing. If he would not have got into contact with the paper and on the 30-year anniversary, nobody would have ever known who it was. He would have just been another m- myth out there. He would have been another bogeyman. Oh, be careful, BTK. Another Jack the Ripper. Yeah, BTK yeah. will come and yeah. get you. Another Krampus kind of thing. But when he was arrested, I think it kind of, he, he realised that he'd done himself in. It wasn't any... It was his own arrogance, wasn't it? Yeah, it wasn't any great police work where they've gone, by Jove, we've got it, yeah. broke the case. It was because he offered himself up willingly yeah. to them. And I think I think kind of that's of his demeanour towards the end. And even, even after the victim impact speeches uh, that they, they read out and he gave his, uh, quote, Academy Award winning speech, which was just a rambling load of nonsense. Yeah. Uh, it, it it was likened to an Academy Award winner, you know, when they get up there and they're all overwhelmed by emotion and they start talking about their past selves, like that one yeah. Dallas Cowboy did. Uh, but yeah, it made no sense, but he showed no emotion, no contrition, no, no. remorse or anything like that. He was just a, a horrible, horrible person, really. Yeah, definitely. Evil, evil man who is now wasting good taxpayers' money. Yeah, that's it, because he's he's serving 10 consecutive life sentences, so he even if he lives, well, he won't, because they're life sentences, so if you live to 1,000, you'd still be alive, so... Yeah. So he's never he's never going to get out. He's 77. I think he was kept in solitary confinement for the first... For his own protection, Yeah, apparently. for his own protection, and the first... Only, only allowed out an hour a day. And and since since then he has actually yeah. been allowed books and other such stuff, but I think they should throw him in the oubliette and forget about him. For yeah, a uh, I don't I don't really think that. Uh... But the thing is, as well with him, they were looking into murders after nineteen ninety one that had been committed in the Kansas area because Kansas didn't have a. Uh, capital punishment they abolished it but they brought it back in after 1991 so when the police were doing their their investigation they were trying to find and i think they were hoping i mean maybe that's the wrong word but they were hoping they could pin something on him that if he committed it when capital punishment was reinstated then he would have got a death penalty the death penalty, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they were they were looking at it, but he's he's admitted to this and these these ten and no more. Uh he's either he's either gone to say that he he had Anna Williams as another project and he was planning to kill again, but who knows? Maybe maybe he did and maybe he was more au fait with the law and if he says anything post ninety one, maybe maybe he'll be getting the chair, so maybe he kept his mouth shut, but Well, it's a goddamn shame. 
Indeed, indeed, it's a goddamn shame. All them ten people just because somebody can't get the rocks off. Just because he wanted to, just because he felt like it. That's it. And I think I think as well, I think what what is like what we've talked about, him not maybe not wanting to kill, but not having to. Yeah. If you look at Ed Kemper, I think he had to kill. He had to get that built up anger out of him. But I think with Raider, I think he had to kill because he didn't have a mask on. He didn't want to be recognised. And then it just became part yeah. of his his thing. You knew there would be no finale with Raider. It just would have gone on until he was caught. There, there would never would have been a last victim. You have to wonder what would have happened if he had been more upfront about his fetishes and things like that. And if he had managed to get them in more ordinary ways, like the, the BDSM communities and things like that. Maybe those people would still be alive. That's it. I think, I'm not going to say 100%, but in my mind, I, I certainly think they would be alive if he was he was more open, if he was more forthcoming, if there was more... I think if he, if he would have been born today or, or, or in, the, in the era of modern technology where you can find them websites just at a click of a button, mm-hmm. I don't think this would have happened at all. I think if he would have found a club where he could have gone yeah. to, I don't think it would have happened at all. Yeah. Just be open and honest with people around you. Even even when it, even if it's something you think is going to cause shame to you, there's always there's there's a key for every lock. There's gonna be yeah. There's gonna be other people out there, no matter what it is, that have the same kind of thing. Exactly, and whether it's to do with sexual fetishes or mental health issues, just reach out to someone and you'll find someone out there who has the same kind of issues going on or things going on and then... Numerous someones. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. There's, there's, There's more than... More than one key to every lock. It's it's uh, it's uh, there's a whole plethora of people out there. And that was the MO podcast. So I've been Contumacious Anne. And I've been Atreya. And we shall see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.